gorging on raw tuna with a camping spork. You've found it, the Japan What Podcast, blowing hot air out of the back end of Tokyo. I'm your co-host, Matt Bigelow. And I'm Tom Molesky. We bring you the inner workings of Japan with an outsider's perspective and zero insight. Zero insight indeed, my friends. How's everything going? Going good. We're free people. We're free people indeed. It's been lifted, yes. Um, it's uh, although it we're free people now, but we could actually leave the house anytime we wanted to before that. So, <laughs> yeah, but I've been getting out of the house every day. And I mean, we, we're saved some of the stern looks we get from people sometimes. Although, I got a stern look yesterday. Did you now? Oh Ooh. yeah, some guy looked at me. Yeah, he was wearing a mask. I wasn't. But right behind him was like a group of three to five Japanese people. None of them were wearing masks. Yeah. So he didn't so maybe see was... that, so he didn't have to glare at them. <laughs> was it a general glare, though? Was it maybe all of you? No, it or was a, It was reserved tra- for you. Tracking me with his eyes. I see. I actually thought I was going to get an ugly look because I went into a supermarket without a mask. Just I was making a quick buy, and I forgot it. And nobody really cared. Um Everybody else was wearing a mask, though. But I, I just tried to keep as low a profile as possible and get the hell out of there. Um, but yeah, I guess maybe maybe enough people are just used to seeing me there. That's like, ah, oh, he's right down the road. He probably isn't. He's okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I noticed some people are taking the masks off. About two months ago, when I started uh, doing these daily uh, excursions out of my house, I was walking from my uh, house in my apartment in central Tokyo here down to Rapongi. And there was nobody on the road. It was a ghost town. Uh, yeah. And now I realize that things are getting back to normal because um, I'm getting uh, pissed off randomly by more and more people as I'm outside. So the, the more things <laughs> return to normal, the, the more I, I'm annoyed by the people in my surroundings. I got to admit, when I walk out and it's not as much now, but it's just completely empty, I look and I'm just like, cool. Like, I don't know. Like, there's that... Some people might find it depressing. I find it kind of oddly inspiring. Yeah, it was great having an entire city to myself. As yeah. selfish as that seems. No, it's not. I mean, in wanting to keep it that way or make taking measures to keep it would be selfish. Just liking it, I don't think, is selfish. Mm. Yeah. Should we play the uh, music clip, or should we play the? Should we come back to this idea of being free after the music? Uh, why don't we play the music? This is a band called Moja. I met back in, I think, 2008. And uh, this is off their new album. It's uh, The song's called Bad Monkey. Like it, 
And that was Mojo with the track uh, Bad Monkey from the album Be Quiet. This band is fascinating to me. Um, actually, uh, they started off, um, I, I first met the drummer Masumi. Um, she was, uh, we were, actually it was, uh, they were going on tour in the UK with Molise, actually with uh, another band from Osaka that we knew. Um, they're now called uh, Boys from Hong Kong, actually. And um, they're doing a, a small tour, and I talked Melissa into going there because Melissa had never played overseas before, and uh, Moja had. So um, Masumi actually had graduated from Berklee School of Music in Boston, and um, uh, she was uh, apparently they her, it's a bass drum duo, and they actually started off as a four-piece band called Gorilla, and the band broke up, and they, the drummer uh, Haruhiko and she just said, oh, let's just continue as a duo. And uh, they came out, they kind of got compared to a band called uh, Death From Above 1979. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I saw and, them live um, once. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're really fun live. Great band to watch live. And um, they... Uh, the bassist actually at the time when I, I interviewed them too for a, for a website and he was making a living. Um, he delivered flowers to funerals. And I said, do you ever see ghosts? He's putting He's the like, fun oh, in funeral. Yeah, I know. Right. And um, he was like, oh yeah, I see him all the time. I'm like, <laughs> Which nice. kind of but um, it was the uh, first taste uh, I brought. Malik, I didn't. I kind of helped get them to go to uh, to London for the first time, and they played uh, uh, sets together. Basically, they would take a, a couple UK bands in, and then they play with uh, Molise and Moja. So it was there were some really great shows out there. Dude, what kind and, of ghosts um, did he see? He didn't go into it actually. Um, too bad. But it was just it was like so casual, like oh oh yeah, of course. Um, Moja actually kind of wanted wanted uh was leading me into a few different topics um one of the other reasons i'd heard about them is they were in a um they came in third in a big competition called the global battle of the bands do you ever uh see any of those shows or were you any in ever in a band that entered them in japan uh not in japan no uh for oh, me okay. i did it in university oh okay and uh the gbob that one? No, just, just, for, just like university level. So oh, all, all the bands from a university, the University of Victoria, probably around 2002, 2003, um, had a competition with each other for the Battle of the Bands. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think we There's came some... in second. Oh, all right. Nice. 
Sometimes it's better than first. Uh, <laughs> Let's be um, honest. First goes out to the prettiest girl. <laughs> We're metaphorically speaking, because whatever band brings the most people in is that's really the one also win. true. Uh, yeah, but this was also in a in a kind of a public place. Yeah. So there's a lot of people there already who are interested who aren't part of the battle of the bands. But let's be honest, if you're a hot girl in university and you get up on stage, <laughs> you have 30% of the votes by default. Yeah, yeah, okay, fair enough. Um Britney Spears it? exists for a reason. Yeah, no, I'm not going to I'm not going to contest that. Um they uh Moja made it to the finals um in I think it was in London and they came in third actually globally. So it was pretty impressive. That's cool. Um yeah, but GBOB and uh another one called Emer Emergenza um actually I think they're at least Emergenza is still um being held every year in Japan. I think GBOB kind of petered out finally. But um I used to go to those and a lot of bands around 2010 that I liked um, competed in those, but it was a frustrating thing with, because it was that thing with whoever was able just to bring the most people with them from the start is going to win. Um, so a lot of good bands that didn't, did not, would not continue. They usually would make it past the first stage, but they'd never make it to the point um, where they would, um, make it to like a semifinals where they'd compete overseas. And I, like I saw, what was it? Melise competed twice. Um, Sawa, our friend Sawa Kato, um, from Sawa's Fool competed there. I saw her for the first time there. Um, a couple other really good bands, um, I saw compete there. Another really good band called the Aspheres. Um, I really liked, but they never made it past it. And the band that won always was in my opinion, a much poorer band musically. And it was always like, ah. The first time I actually met um, Justin Sachs, who was uh, one of our guests, I, I kind of really put my foot in my mouth because he was... You're uh, flexible. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Especially when I'm embarrassing myself. Um, he, he was starting to, uh, what, more than music, he was starting to put things together. And um, one of the things he wanted, he came down to Anga, actually, uh, to a show I organized. What's Anga? Livehouse Anga. Okay. The, uh, the one that we were talking about for, uh, um, before for the heart Yeah, I know, I know. But we just got to be careful with name dropping all of these things for people who are listening for the first time. Okay. Yeah. Well, then I'm, I'm explaining. Okay. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, in any case, uh, Justin came up to me, he wanted to talk, and he's like, oh, yeah, what do you think of Battle of Bands? I was like, oh, those suck. I hate, like, I can't stand the fact that the winner is never the best band. And he kind of just kind of buried his face in his hands, and then I realized, oh, he actually holds his own Battle of the Bands. Sorry. And I <laughs> he came all that way, and he came to, like, he approached me, and he was really nice and really friendly, and I totally trashed without knowing what Jeez. he was working on. Well, that's too bad. Yeah. Clearly he hasn't, from the interview, I don't think he's he holds anything against me, but sorry, Justin, anyway. No kidding. Well, I don't really like Battle of the Bands either. It's uh, it's a, it's fun to do when, when I was younger, but now that I'm yeah. older, I don't know. It's just like, ugh. 
Yeah, it, it was frustrating. I mean, I, on the other side, I did learn about a lot of good bands. Mm. It was from, always from frustrating an, when from they From an audience continue. perspective, it's great because you can just see a whole bunch of interesting bands that aren't really correlated with each other. Yeah. But sometimes yeah. from a performer's perspective, like you said, like there's, you have to deal with um, the, the the tyranny of the mob, you know, just uh, everybody voting for the the hot girl and then the popular people. And then, right. and then uh, the other bands get thrown under the bus. And yeah. uh, that's Battle of the Bands. <laughs> that is indeed. Indeed it is. Yeah. Um, but I mean, a lot again, it's, maybe that's also a test. It, you know, the bands that stay together and keep playing end up probably outperforming a lot of the winners. Right. So um, it's a good thing to put on their um, on your resume. But I have seen a few of the Japanese bands that did like win at least the Japanese leg of it. They didn't really go anywhere from it. It's it's a nice thing to put, but uh, to put on your credentials, but it it doesn't give you that big a bump either, unfortunately. No, it really doesn't. It's it's a good way to um, bolster your competitive edge or to uh, make yourself feel good that you did something. Um, At the time, it'll it might open a door or two. I'm not gonna. I won't totally trash it, but yeah, in the long run, it, it's not. It's not a game changer, I guess. No, it's not. It's not. Yeah. But it's, you know, if you can pump it up and get some people in there and do some drink sales and all that from a promotional perspective, it can be fun. But um, I even yeah. wonder, you know, it used to be uh, Battle of the Bands had an element of surprise to it. Um, you would watch yeah. the bands. Uh, now it's just the same thing over and over again. Everybody goes there and uh, tries to capture everything on Instagram and upload all of the sets on IGTV and, and all of that type of stuff. <laughs> it's yeah, kind of, yeah. the purpose of it has changed so much. I guess if you live in that environment, it makes sense, but uh, the it, it's almost like, I don't know, trying to ram a, a record player into, um, into a Tesla. <laughs> Battle of the bands, a record player crammed into a Tesla. Enjoy. <laughs> exactly yeah yeah speaking of which it's uh just um as as we've said before working on your your online profile is probably a better way of uh of getting new fans and that's what we've been, i've been doing for um both uh this show and then the molise the band the molise and tease lounge the place i work at a lot um hopefully at one point we can kind of triangulate those and increase the foundation for each one and then build a bigger platform. Um, in the midst of this, in building kind of a Twitter profile, uh, increasing the Twitter profile, I got some interesting uh, DMs from people. They're now um, asking bands or a group of people to um, meet up on Zoom to discuss new music. Yeah, and, do you um, have Zoom? I do actually, I need it for uh, teaching online. Okay, so we'll probably do the interview with Lowagon on Zoom. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyways, okay. please continue. Yeah. Um, they they sent it, and um, the first thing they said, uh, please contact me for the deets, and instead of details. And when I saw deets, I was kind of like, no, I ca I can't do it. I can't do that. I can't. I don't know. I can't write someone who call who asks for the deets without knowing me. I have a couple of quests. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, maybe if I know you, you can use that, but, but you can't, not the first contact. 
And then I, th- although- I think having good nutrition is important for the COVID. <laughs> yes, uh, exactly. Now, um, I, I was already kind of iffy on it, but then I started to get them kind of randomly from different people, and it was the exact same message. And I'm like, oh, am I being spammed for something now? Dude, I've like, received so many messages from my like SoundCloud accounts or different accounts yeah. or something like that with a contact. And the, the world is full of spam. And if you try to right. advertise something honestly, you get blocked for it because the world is such a dishonest, horrible place. You essentially yeah. have to create a wall around your product these days and yeah. shoot everybody who tries to break it down. Yeah, it's a really, really like harsh filter. You know, like you you have to be like, yeah, you have to erect the cruel filter. <laughs> the world is full of spam and not in a good way. <laughs> not in the way you'd hope. <laughs> yeah, it is very cruel. And uh, I realized that even when I'm trying to communicate with some people on Twitter – I'm trying to communicate honestly, but they receive so much crap from the world that they're yeah. probably hesitant to say, uh, hey, what's up? <laughs> yeah, you need like, I don't know, honesty or, or like validity, like triggers, trigger words or something to say, no, this is real. This is not a robot, you know? Mm-hmm. That's it's why a- the, I guess the uh, verified uh, thing comes into play. It's very useful. Yeah. And then they try to spam you with that natural language. Hey, uh, get the deets. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. So it's spam as as natural language to try to trick you. It's all just trying to trick you. Is there a word for for like a a sense that's like an internal cringe factor or something like that? Yeah, it's called douche chills. (laughs) There you go. Nice. (laughs) <laughs> good good to dig that one up i like that oh yeah that's the douche chills yeah so yeah i won't be contacting these people but uh if you've had any stories or similar experiences please look us up and uh contact us to uh either on facebook or on twitter at japan what yeah no kidding so um, I'm gonna. We have a couple of minutes before going into the interview. We'll just play this. Japan has opened recently, and uh, here is the background. Turning to Japan, where people in Tokyo are enjoying their first weekend since the capital ended a state of emergency due to the coronavirus. Some are cautiously making trips into shopping districts, where many businesses have reopened for the first time in weeks. Tokyo will allow gyms, theaters, and retail shops dealing in non-essential goods to reopen on June 1st. It will continue to request that restaurants and cafes stop serving food and drinks by 10 p.m. Right on. So we can go get wasted in the afternoon in in public again. They're encouraging day drinking. Yes. They (laughs) certainly have been. Oh. Um. So yeah, I that's think that's good. it's reasonable. I was uh, walking around and I was going through the Olympic Village, the uh, the new uh, new stadium and all of that. Uh, still a lot of it's cordoned off, but there was probably about thirty or forty people skateboarding out yesterday in this terraced area. Um, people, you know, on their phones taking videos and uh, little outings and things like that, picnicking. You know, no riots, <laughs> very peaceful. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's it's all internalized, right? So, unfortunately. Well, I, I think the one thing about Japan is 
if there was a, a, a big, it doesn't pile on as much. There's this crisis and usually there's nothing that compounds it. Unlike like what's going on in the States and we won't go into it too much because we don't focus on Japan, but yeah, there's always events and incidences that just make it exponentially worse. Mm. And I don't see that happening as much here. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, think I, I, I had a good blog post actually last week. I posted it. Oh, yeah. It got a lot of hits from around the world and it led to some people accessing mm -hmm. the podcast. And it, oh, my right. last line said, um, you know, we're free. We can do whatever we want. But I think most Japanese people are just ready to get it over and done with. And that's kind of what I see happening. You know, it's uh, yeah. this idea of a whole new normal and everything like that. I don't know. I see things just incrementally returning back to the old normal. Yeah, yeah. What's the next increment? How long do you think it should uh, hold in this stage before it goes to like fully normal? Uh, it'll probably be like it? a couple of months. There'll be like stage yeah. one, stage two, stage three. It's Japan. And then in the news, they'll announce that the government is meeting these certain experts next week. And then the week after, they will have a declaration of an announcement. And then that day, they will announce it at a certain time and, and everything like that. So it's all it's all good. Oh, uh, yeah. 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 Um, well, I hope they can hold out. I hope the like, it's it's been rough if you've been in the food and drink industry at all. It's uh, it, I just hope they can hold on, and I hope if you know the government gets uh like you know payouts, I hope it gets the, the people involved in those industries first. I have I have no idea. Um, yeah, it's 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 such a crazy everything that. Um, certain uh, businesses are going to succeed and certain will fail. And I don't know, what do you do? It's, uh, it's all there. It's all you can do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's survival of the fittest right now or survival of the luckiest, you know, mm. you never, um, but yeah, your, your heart goes out to them, you know, nobody asked for this and, uh, it hit them the hardest. I'm thinking about canceling my gym membership though. I've lost a, quite a bit of weight just by doing calisthenics oh, and really? exercises at home. Yeah. So yeah. I might just cancel my gym membership, save a hundred bucks a month, but I yeah. think that might be, that's kind of boring. Um, <laughs> okay. We got to get this call ready. We're going to talk to yeah. Le Wagon, which is a coding camp trying to help people empower their computer skills to develop um, uh, professional uh, uh, computer skills in the 2020s. So let's talk to them and we're going to join them on Zoom in just a minute here. Are you ready? I am. Let's do it. Here we go. And joining us now is Mr. Sylvain Pierre from the coding school Le Wagon. Uh, Sylvain, thank you for coming and uh, taking the time out of your busy schedule for you to be here today. Thanks a lot for having me. Great to meet you guys. It's um, a pleasure. So, Le, sorry, Tom. So Le Wagon is a coding school. This is a relatively new phenomenon to Tokyo. Um, and especially for a uh, tech business as a startup, are you startup? I, I, we'll get into that. But to come into Tokyo and maybe disrupt things a little bit, can you please um, describe your uh, your school and your your business activities? Yeah, sure. So Levergo started in uh, in France originally in two thousand thirteen, um, and so as you mentioned, it's a it's a coding bootcamp, 
right? So in, uh, in nine weeks, we take our students from a beginner level to the level of a web developer or a data scientist. So we currently have two uh, curriculums, two offerings. Uh, one is uh, dedicated to web development and the other one is dedicated to uh, data science. And so on the more uh, Tokyo level, I would say, um, I started the, the school in Tokyo myself, right? So it's uh, my own business here in Japan. And uh, we started in 2016. So it's been uh, three years. Roughly. Why did you start a coding boot camp in Tokyo as a foreigner? It's a very good question. Um, so actually, I wasn't living in, uh, in Japan back then. Um, uh, I was really interested in, uh, in Japan. I came here for the first time in 2008 um as a as a backpacker really like traveling around the country um and i i always thought to myself that i would come and live in japan uh, at some point because i thought it was a very um challenging experience as a as an as an expat and uh, i started coming on and off to japan in 2000 uh in 2013 so every three months, I would I would travel from Vietnam and then spend a couple of weeks in uh, in Tokyo, uh, and I met a lot of people through that. Maybe I met like 100, 150 people. Um, so kind of networking, you know, meeting people one by one, and so that way I built my network, and that's how that's how I met my uh, my future co-founder, um, who uh, who already left the company, but back then uh, we we started together. And uh, and we started talking about uh, maybe starting something together, and uh, we both were interested in 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 that activity, in the, that coding bootcamp or like teaching code, teaching tech activity. Um, and what we did is actually quite interesting. We we set up um, a landing page, uh, and the landing page was named uh, Tokyo Code School, and there was absolutely no service behind it. Uh, there was no nothing. It was really just a landing page where people could sign up. Uh, and we got a lot of, of interest. Uh, we received maybe 50, 60 uh, kind of like inquiries. Uh, and we thought, well, there is, a, there is a potential here. And there was absolutely no uh, coding school in English in, in Japan, whereas it was already quite big in, uh, in the US, um, quite like quite mature, mature business already. And in Europe, it was getting started. So we thought, well, why not bring it to Tokyo? What and, uh, type of... The um, launch... Oh, sorry, go ahead. What type of students were interest, uh, initially interested? It was an English boot camp, but was it international or Japanese or a mix? Uh, the, the crowd, it was really mixed. Like, it was... Um, uh, Japanese people who could speak English were interested in coding and potentially travel abroad. It was uh, foreigners living in Japan, uh, foreigners not living in Japan as well. So it was really all over the was place. Was there any age breakdown? I'm kind of curious about that. Um, so average age is 29. Um, and we've had the youngest student we've had was uh, actually 15. So we stopped accepting young students, but uh, we've had a 15-year-old student. And the oldest person was uh, over fifty, actually. So the, the range is quite uh, like quite large. Right? It's quite a quite a big range. And um, so twenty nine years old average means it's it's you know people who already have some working experience. Uh, they have a professional background, maybe in marketing, maybe in finance, maybe as English teachers. So it's 
it's really a, a diverse crowd. And okay, so you said you were um, backpacking starting off. Were, is this, did this all stem from kind of being kind of pigeonholed into like that kind of language teacher career um, that you notice, oh, let me try and give more people more uh, tools to work with to find a career path? Um, not, not really. So I was, I was, I was living in Vietnam by then. So the backpacking part was just a, a trip, uh, like a 10 day trip oh, uh, around Japan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, no, I was, uh, I was working in IT in Vietnam. What type of programs you say you're running two schools, one is data science mm. and what was the other one? Uh, web development. Yes. Web development. So yeah. how can you become a data scientist in nine weeks? For me, data science is this mysterious wizardry that I assume you have to be some sort of mm. prodigy to um, become. But if you're just like, no, here's a nine-week program, bro, you know? <laughs> so uh, what type of, what type of, what is a data scientist and how do you train them? Yeah, so um, this this program actually is going to to get started in October, right? So we're getting ready for it, and it's going to be our very first session. Um, and I would say there are two two things uh, to understand about about that is um, first of all, we do have um, prerequisite, meaning you need to know how to code already, and you need to know you need to have like a, a pretty good level math as well what so type we of levels like are you talking about and level? what type of computer uh, skills so uh computer skills really anything um you anything as in um you need to have program an understanding of uh programming basic programming concept so you don't necessarily need to be good in uh, in python python is the go-to language for data science right but you don't necessarily be need need to be good in, in in Python. You can be good in Ruby, JavaScript, as long as you understand um, uh, programming concepts. Okay, um, and in math, well, it's it's really like senior high school level. So like knowing what's uh, what's deriv derivative, sorry, what are um, uh, like uh, a mean and uh, uh, average things like that. So it's it's like basic knowledge in statistics and math. Okay. So that's yeah. going to be starting in October. And for the computer development program, yeah. um, computer mm. web development, uh, what are some success that. stories and what are some horror stories coming out of your school? Um, so success stories, uh, wow, we, we have quite a lot. So we've had, um, um, I, I would say there are two, two objectives, two main objectives. Really. One is career change and one is starting a company, right? Uh, becoming an entrepreneur. So in terms of, of career change, uh, um, we've had a, uh, a student who originally is from Guatemala and came to Japan and, and got married. And he was working in, uh, in construction. So he was really like building houses and signed up for the, for the bootcamp. And uh, he worked really, really hard and ended up landing a job, I think a, a month and a half after graduating. Um, and he has no uh, like no bachelor degree. He has a high school degree, uh, and we were uh, extremely happy for him. Like that's that's one of the best stories uh, we've had. I would say uh, we've had um, former barista, former sushi chef, so uh, kind of like really nice career transition or career change. In terms of uh, entrepreneurship, uh, so 
we, we do have quite a lot of people coming into the bootcamp and, and thinking, well, I'm going to start a business afterwards and, and end up starting maybe becoming a freelancer or starting a, a small a small company and really making money on their own, like without relying on, on the company paying them. Uh, horror stories. Um, I, I don't think we've had any any horror stories really. Uh, yeah, of course the, not. But uh, no, like the worst the worst that can happen really is uh, is someone joining the bootcamp and and really not not getting it. Um, in which case we just like we just say, listen, it's it's not gonna work, and we, we cannot really help you with that. That was kind of my lead in for the horror story. So I, I imagine that some people go in expecting something and then it's not that thing and then they might drop or quit. What what would be advice uh, for people who who would need to uh, receive some motivation to keep going? Like what, what should they expect? You know, sometimes we hear the stories of the Marines and this guy trains to be a Marine and he goes and then it's like not what he expects it to be, you know? So... What should people expect mm. uh, before going in so that they're not getting the wrong idea? Yeah, so we we do, like first, motivation is the most important aspect, right? We think that anyone can learn programming, anyone can become a web developer, as long as you have that initial drive and that initial uh, motivation. And And the reason is very simple, is because those people are going to become web developer, right? Um, and as a web developer, when they graduate, they will need to keep on coding, keep on practicing, and, and really act like a developer. And if you don't have that initial spark or motivation, you're not going to make it, right? You might go through the bootcamp, but afterwards, you will need to code every day. If you don't enjoy that, um, I mean, there is no way you're going to make it through. Mm. So. That's one of the main things uh, we check during interview, during a candidate selection. So you have to be ready to use the tool and not just expect to have the tool delivered to you. Yeah, good point, actually. Hmm. Now, um, for people, you were saying the guy was uh, the barista sushi chef. Are they able to um, keep up with the coursework uh, work while working a full work day? Is that is it designed to kind of get around those uh, working hours and uh, so it's um, so originally we, we were only proposing a full-time course so it's nine week full-time right? right and it's it's really intense um, recently we introduced a, a part-time course which is more um, like suitable for people with a with a full-time job um, and so that part-time course goes over like runs over 24 weeks I see okay a lot, night school thing yeah yeah, kind of nice school. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I can use an old term, old school term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done night school before. It's actually a a, a good way to have something adjust to your schedule. You know, it's a, instead of having to go to the bank at three p.m. on a Wednesday, you know, that's really inconvenient to most of the world. Uh, accommodating a, a market need only makes sense. Yeah. yeah it's, oh, go ahead. No, I just realized uh, also, um, I realized at this point, like kind of a brick and mortar location isn't really necessary, but is there a place, um, is it all completely online or is there a place where people can meet to have a discussion, to have a talk about it, maybe to, if they're behind to get up to speed? So yeah, the, the I mean, 
we've we've always been running uh, on site, right, on campus. So we've we had to move online uh, for the past couple of months. Um, and uh, actually, our students are having a really great experience online. But uh, eventually, we we are going to come back on site because that's uh, that's I mean that's the concept of the school, right? People also sign up for that uh, you know in person experience. Um, but the the online uh, experience that we've had over the past couple of months, it it did give us some ideas about new, new maybe new services or new offerings, uh, and we noticed that, well, first of all, people were, are learning extremely well online when they have someone to motivate them, um, and also you 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 bring in some like different kinds of people who potentially could not come to your school or who you know, prefer to stay at home, but then they can still join you and, and follow your classes. Yeah. One of the aspects of uh, having a high-speed network is to have uh, concentrated expertise in metropolitan areas being able to be delivered to rural areas so that people from the rural areas do not need to congregate where the expertise is uh, overly centralized. Yeah. Um. Regarding data science, this is also leading into artificial intelligence. Have you noticed, um, are you into AI? Do you study AI? Um, so personally, I don't. Uh, um, we, we do have uh, team members who are really interested in, in it, um, and they are studying it uh, extremely seriously. So I'm, I would say following what's happening in the field, but not necessarily studying it myself yet. Recently, I've noticed that Facebook's um, language or programming language, PyTorch, is giving Python a run for its money in many, uh, especially amongst younger coders. Um, mm. Have you looked into that? So, um, so the, the reason why um, we came up with data science uh, now, or we are coming up with data science now, is because... Um, over the past few years, the the, the environment, the develop the development environment uh, stabilized. Um, so you know, it used to be maybe a, a little bit all over the place, but now um, people are kind of using all all the same tools. Everyone is using the same tools to do to do AI, to do data science. So the the development environment is almost stable now, which means we can start offering a course that makes sense. It wasn't true like three or four years ago. Right, you would study a language and it would get replaced by something else. There, yes. there goes your reputation and your customer's money. That's not good, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. But now, um, yeah, but now, now it's it's stable. So you, you like Python is pretty much the go-to language uh, for all things data science, um, and pretty much the whole environment is stable. So, so you can build an offering now. I would say. Um, and it, it, it does make sense. Yeah. So was this, um, was this something that you came across before starting the school? You, you were coming across a lot of people that kind of wanted to move on or move to another level and they just, they just didn't have the skills or they didn't have a starting point. Was this kind of more like you really wanted to help people along or was this something you saw like this could be a real business opportunity that we could build on? Um, you mean on a on a more personal level, like why? Yeah, why? actually, yeah, that um, that's a good question. So on a personal level, um, I was so I was working in in Vietnam, and I was um, let's say founding member in that company. And even though I was I was 
part of the core team, I really wanted to have something uh, of my own, mm-hmm. like a company of my own. So that's one reason why why I started Lovago in Tokyo. Um, and then it, it made it, it just made sense why I, I don't think we ran into big issues or starting the business. So it, it made sense for us to launch it. There was clearly a, a business opportunity. So probably that's the reason initially why we started. The reason why I'm continuing after three, four years is uh, is more what you mentioned, like bringing people opportunities. And um, I feel like the more I do it, the more I enjoy um, hang, like hanging out with the students um, and seeing what they become. Uh, seeing them develop from like really beginner sometimes to to landing jobs in in cool companies, and that's what uh, I would say what's bringing me a pleasure not on a daily basis, but when you see that happening, you're really happy. Mm, that's great. It's great to hear. Yes. I've worked in IT and before the- as well, and I see a lot of people develop huge skills, and they go and they just become a cog in a giant corporation. But being able to use technological skills with an applied uh, desire for your own personal gain. That's a good combination. Sorry, Tom. Mm. Yeah, no, I just, uh, I was, um, it sounded like it wasn't too difficult to transition to go uh, online, uh, completely online for the time being. Um, how have you handled just the last two months? Um, so um, we've always been using a, a teaching platform. Meaning our students had access to uh, have access to all of the content from day one, right? So, and that was true even when we were on campus. Right. So, transitioning was really uh, well finding a way to give our lectures online, and we have Zoom; it works really well. But everything else, like the content um, and the the day to day activity and the daily schedule, didn't change that much. Um, so. I feel like the this, like the learning environment that we built before Corona was kind of ready to move online already, so we didn't have to adjust that much. Yeah. All right. Um, so, Tom, anything else? Uh, that's all I had. I was also just wondering personally how you're holding up uh, in the in the coronavirus uh, age, but uh, yeah. Um, Curious what your thoughts on that. I, I'd say I'm a, uh, well, op- optimistic and pessimistic at the same time. So you, you, you see a lot of people saying, well, um, uh, it, I mean, we hope that uh, it's going to change the world or that it's going to, to, you know, make the world evolve a little bit. I'm, I'm, I must confess I'm a little bit pessimistic about that. I do think that it's going to go back to where we were before. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but... Uh, to a certain extent, I think like the system is built so that it's going to come back that way uh, as soon as it can. Uh, but optimistic because, uh, I mean, uh, I mean things are going to get better. So we're, we're pretty much at the bottom of it right now. Mm. Yeah. All right. Can only go up, right? That's a good note to end on, right? <laughs> I guess so, yeah. yeah. And uh, where, where can people find you if they're interested, uh, Sylvain? Um, wow, uh, we, we're everywhere. Uh, so we have Le Wagon accounts on Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook. Yeah. And personally, you can, you can find me like just uh, find my name on, on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and don't hesitate to ping me. I'm happy to, to talk uh, further. 
You're a very personable guy. And if you're American, it's Lay Wagon. <laughs> oh, the Wagon, yeah. Le wagon. Yeah, just, yeah. Uh, I mean, just putting it in American terms. What yes. does Le Wagon, why is it called Le Wagon? Ah, Le Wagon. Um, so we have a, le wagon? Le wagon? <laughs> we have a French um, a French uh, saying, kind of a proverb. Uh, that is um, our proverb was saying we were saying like uh, edu like education in France is one uh, like one train car behind one wagon behind wagon in French is like train car right. Uh, so basically that means that education was was lagging. Uh, and so Le Wagon is kind of saying, well, uh, we're going to take education forward, move education forward. That was the, the reason for that. Ah, all Fantastic. right. Yeah. Can't forget after that now. Le, Le Wagon. Wagon. Yes. <laughs> uh, Sylvain Pierre of Le Wagon, the wagon, uh, from the coding boot camp uh, based in Tokyo, Japan here. Thank you very much for coming on the Japan What podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Donate to the Japan What Podcast by going to paypal.me forward slash Japan WUT. Mm. And thanks again to Mr. Sylvain Pierre of Loragon uh, for Very offering cool uh, his, uh, his take on his business in Japan. Entrepreneurial spirit, technology, startups, all that type of stuff. It's, it's, I like that. Yeah, people really need that because it's like you don't – a lot of times you just – don't know where to start. Once you get kind of put in that direction, you're okay. But, you know, it's hard to know who to trust and who to go to. And it sounds like they got a really reputable business. Yep. And uh, it, it is kind of mysterious because I, I kind of know a lot about computing and, and markets and things like that. But it really, for mm -hmm. me, stops at code. When I see yeah. code, I'm like, I feel like I'm uh, – because I could read music and sheet music and things like that, but if you're if you if you can't read sheet music, it looks terrifying. I bet. Oh right, yeah, uh, exactly. So it's kind of similar with code. You're you're looking at this, going like, oh man, these people are too smart for me. Uh, right. But that that um, guy from South America, he managed to start as a you know as a construction worker in Japan and come out on the other side of that boot camp with a job in IT. So that's cool. Yeah. And the fact they can make it available to somebody who's working full time already is uh, is also really cool. Yeah, markets, man, markets. It's a very different world from when I came to Japan in two thousand six. None of this stuff existed back then. It wasn't even an option on the table. Yeah, no, I was I was here in nineteen ninety eight. So you can only imagine. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I've really seen a shift from uh, foreigners coming to Japan f to instead of to teach to do tech. Yeah. It's now shifted yeah. to IT, and Google has like a 35-story building in Shibuya now, for and they're focusing on startups and hiring engineers and things like that. It's yeah, crazy. yeah. So I was um, looking at, I was trying to figure out what to do, because I've, I've been using Twitter a lot more recently, uh, becoming mm -hmm. like a Twitter yeah. addict in a way, and a lot oh. of the Twitter stuff I follow is, uh, it just ended up being trends in America. And of course, right. it's always kind of super crazy what the trend is going on in America on Twitter. I mean, it's it's usually something pretty weird, um, uh, not just because it's America, but just because it's Twitter. Twitter really kind of focuses on a on the on extremes, a, on right? the extreme, yeah. or on crowd consciousness. If you've ever read uh, yeah. the book uh, "The Crowd" by Gustave Le Bon, 
he he went around the world analyzing crowd behavior in the 1800s or something like that. And oh, really? uh, you can still apply what he learned. You know, you take out the 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 European mentality of the world at the time, but you just look at his analysis and you can kind of go, yeah, certain types of crowds produce certain types of effects and events depending on where you are and what type of people you're around. And Twitter does that as well. It kind of illuminates some sort of crowd consciousness of the of the crowd you're looking at. And you can look at any crowd on Twitter uh, if you, you look at the like, trends. Like a mob mentality kind of thing? or it, Yeah, mob mentality. It can get to mob mentality, but it's okay. it, it starts off as crowd mentality. And that's when the subconsciousness of a group overrides the consciousness of the individual. And then people start behaving as a group on whole. Like everybody looks at birds and goes, wow, look at those birds flying together. One bird shifts and the other has to just go with it. <laughs> humans can't do that. No, humans do that with their consciousness. Yeah. And Twitter, yeah. Twitter looks at way. how, you know, hashtags develop and then people start repeating the hashtag and repeating the hashtag. And that creates in itself a, a type of crowd consciousness to develop in the Twitter sphere. And then add into the fact that you don't really have to take much responsibility for it, for anything that you you post or type up, um, much less so than if you were there in face-to-face, then that compounds it and makes it and polarizes it and makes it much more extreme. And then everyone is also looking to – it's more like uh, entropy. It's where it's just more and more like looking to stir and stir and stir up more. Kind of, you can, but if you get enough people in a crowd, you can behave without consequence. Right, right. Yeah. If if you get fifty to sixty people who look similar to each other with similar clothes, and you don't have Mm -hmm. a lot of um, facial recognition or advanced technology going on at the time, if you if you see an action twenty minutes later, try to pinpoint that person. It doesn't matter what the action could be. It could be violent. It could be positive. It could be somebody giving you a bottle of water in the middle of a desert. Uh, by a, a group of wandering nomads, you know, 20 minutes later, you might be wondering which nomad it was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, again, no responsibility for your actions. So s- people go in weird directions with that. And so I've been looking at Japanese Twitter recently because I'm, okay. I'm always kind of looking at basic news in Japan or uh, English news in Japan, which is, it's not really crowd consciousness. It's just like, here's what's happening. Here's what's yeah. happening. Here's what's happening. And uh, a couple of things I noticed on Japanese Twitter. Oh, I have a, a clip for this. Hold on. Okay, let's hear it. That was kind of loud. Um, uh, <laughs> I'll fix that in post. <laughs> that that I made that jingle, and I didn't put any kind of kooky voices in there to uh, illustrate that I'm, I'm respecting it. I made okay. that in uh, I made that song myself in in Logic Pro. Nice. Yeah, awesome. Um, so a couple of two th- two things. One was the word the katakana word blue impulse. Do you know blue impulse? No, I don't. Blue impulse. I didn't know it either. But it's the aerial the air defense forces. Uh, oh, okay. group of planes that kind of fly around and do stunts for the public. Uh, you call them the Blue Angels in America? Blue Angels, I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah It's yeah, the right. Japanese version of the Blue Angels, or every every country has them. Canada has them. The Snow Angels, I can't remember, but they used to train in my hometown. We got free aerial shows every year. So, so you're allowed to only change one word, I guess. Something like that. The, <laughs> the, the snow birds. That's what they are, the snow <laughs> Okay, birds. all right. Uh, it's been so long since I've even thought about no. them. Uh, <laughs> But uh, Blue Impulse did a flyover of Tokyo 
uh, after yes, the yeah. prime minister announced that the the restrictions were lifted for the COVID nineteen, and this was a huge event on on blue on on Japanese Twitter, and it had a whole bunch of pictures, uh, and it, this is where we get kind of. A, where a lot of the times the imagery that people choose to promote really reflects a type of crowd consciousness, right? Uh, one example of this is when we had the solar eclipse, right? I just mm-hmm. was looking yeah. forward to the moon in front of the sun. But okay. In, on, on Japanese social media, something came out, came out called um, Diamond Ring. Okay. And this is when... The after the the sun has been fully eclipsed, the the sun moves over the, the the moon continues to move, and as soon as the the corona of the moon is is kind Ooh. of overpassed by the back of the sun, it creates okay. a diamond effect off of the top of the moon, and it creates oh. a ring with Ooh. a diamond effect, right? With like okay. a, a sparkling diamond, and that's called mm-hmm. the, the diamond ring, and. Oh, uh, wow. They did the same thing with the blue impulse today or this week. Where uh-huh. They had the the group of planes flying over Tokyo, leaving behind like a stream of smoke behind them, or you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's it called when they're spraying uh, chemtrails? When they were chemtrails? Chemtrails. There yeah, you go. No, sorry, yep. that's that's conspiracy. They chemtrailed us. <laughs> uh, no, when they were flying over Tokyo, doing a flyover with the smoke, the group of planes flew right under the sun, and at that moment, somebody took a picture of all of these Japanese people looking up. At the blue bird, at the blue impulse group, uh, the, as the planes were flying right over the sun, under the sun, and the sun had this giant corona blast kind of coming off of it. And that was one example of Japanese Twitter. Oh, I see. And so they're just kind of positive. Oh, that's, I, I was not expecting that actually. I was like, oh, 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 positive. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah, but it if focuses it could... on the, the manipulation of the reality uh, of the imagery. Or, or yeah. Changing yeah. perspectives, yeah. Now, the other thing on Japanese Twitter was called Hinomaru no Masku. Hinomaru no Masku, okay. I think that's what it was. And this was a kind of a scandal where um, a figure skater was wearing a mask by this private company called Hinomaru. Okay. Uh, Hanryu, I think he won, he won like one of the big Olympic medals a few yeah. years ago. Yeah, yeah. And so this company decided to make a whole bunch of masks. And then somebody reported on Twitter that this company was being funded or had some sort of affiliation with the government. And then all of these Twitter crowds started making tweets about this company being associated with the government. And the CEO of this company got so angry about these uh, falsehoods against his company, he canceled all the mask orders. <laughs> wow um not the best business decision i am <laughs> but he was so frustrated about his good name being tarnished he just said screw By being it i'm done yeah with the government okay not even it was the falsehood if, if he was actually affiliated with the government i think he would be like oh good my name's getting out there blah 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 right. but he's yeah. just like this is a falsehood against my name canceled <laughs> that was my understanding yeah, I guess uh, I can't say white privilege there, but but it sounds a lot like it. I don't know. I think it's a, an example of the the crowd consciousness uh, where you can't have your name being tarnished and you have scorch. to scorch it in order to save it. It seems like, I don't know, in business, like uh, as long as it's not like, you know, against – uh, directly against your product that almost any news is good news, but just a falsehood is bad, even if it's not necessarily hurting your business. Yeah. Is it being connected to the Abe no masks? 
the Abbe no mask just kind of went away because uh, it was right. taxpayer but, funded. But I mean, that was a, one example of a, a mask with a poor reputation. Is it possibly that kind of connection? Oh, it might be. Yeah, he doesn't want his masks being associated with the the the, the poorly received masks of the government. It's like yeah, that uh, huge aversion to risk in Japanese corporate culture. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. So now what? Well, that's Is Japanese it... Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> So now that he's canceled all the orders, now he's like starting again at square one. Who knows? Talking, yeah, no. <laughs> talking up his uh, mask salesman again. All right, guys. I know I canceled all the orders, but I need you to get back out there. Yeah, sell them to Singapore. <laughs> nice. <laughs> sell them to India. <laughs> we need to get rid of them offshore yeah. immediately, but with a profit. Offshore. <laughs> Offshore profiteering. Japanese Twitter. All right. Um, so we were talking a little bit about um, uh, donation projects for bands and things like that. One of yeah, them was yeah, What right. the Dickens and in Infinity Books. And right, yep. they recently exceeded their, um, their website, their Campfire, their donation amount. Really? They were looking oh, for wonderful. 400 million yen. And they managed really? to get, no, sorry, not 400 million, sorry, 4 million yen or roughly $40,000 right. between these two things. I would assume Dickens would take two thirds or, you know, even 80% because it's such a bigger place um, right. in, a, in a more expensive area, perhaps, ABC okay. versus Asakusa. But they had 378 donors. There's 11 hours left as of now, but they've surpassed 4 million yen to go 4,062,000 yen. That's fantastic. Really? Wow. Yep. Um, uh, and, uh, I didn't realize also it was a joint project between the two, uh, two venues. Oh, wow. It gives me a little bit of hope. Uh, I'm surprised. I'm honestly am. Cause, uh, I yeah. don't really donate to these types of things and, uh, people yeah. really stepped up. Oh, the reason why that there was successful is not because of the, the fact that they were only asking for donations, but people right. as what, um, uh, Mickey was talking about getting uh, bonds, basically drink tickets uh, the drink at tickets, a discount. Yeah, right. So they were selling uh, drink tickets at a discount. So after you reach the mm -hmm. amount, you go to the shop that you help save and share beer with each other. Nice. Yeah, that's good. Tying them both together. That's really smart. Yeah. And some people might even go there and tear up their, their uh, tickets as a way to say, I support you so much, I'm tearing up my tickets. Solidarity. If you're yeah. giving up drinking, yeah, that's real solidarity. That's right. Solidarity. <laughs> May I uh, mention one other project since we're on the subject? Yep. Um, Bandcamp uh, holds uh, actually regular, regularly scheduled days called Bandcamp Days where they waive the amount of money they take from sales uh, on their website, which is usually around 15%. So um, this is actually a big boost to anyone who's, uh, you know, any musician or artist. Um, so what you can do is promote and ask people to buy your product on those particular days. So I was talking to the band Slow Wolf's Club, who is uh, associated with Mickey, who are part of Sen City Records. Um, their event, uh, their they uh, have an album out, a charity album, looking to support the uh, venue Livehouse Anga. So coming up 
June fifth uh, is the next Bandcamp day, and they asked if you're going to purchase the Heart of Chiba, the charity compilation album used to support Livehouse Anga. Please buy it on June fifth. All righty. Yes, and uh, 14 great artists playing live in uh, uh, Livehouse Anga, um, yours for a very low amount for 1,000 yen. Uh, it's a great album. Check it out and uh, support uh, support live music. Support live music. I have a Japan Society 5.8 update. All right, let's hear it. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new... All right, and that, of course, is the government of Japan's promotional message for right. uh, Japan Society 5.0. And I was looking at um, uh, new 5G antennas. Okay, yes. Deployed. Now, a lot of people like have, you know, have these really crazy ideas about 5G and their effect on possible cancer and everything like that. Um, of course, when you introduce any type of electromagnetic frequencies or radio frequencies or, or high beam frequencies in the 20 gigahertz range, there, of course, might be some risk. I, I used to teach 5G engineers, and they said, you know, they don't really see a risk, but we won't even know for 10 to 20 years. So, but at the same time, you know, we don't put our, our babies inside of um, carriages filled with iPhones for a reason. Right. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you, you keep some distance. But anyway, so I'm, I'm kind of introducing 5G in this way to say I'm not this crazy 5G guy. But mm -hmm. um, Tokyo government is to trial 5G antenna-equipped smart poles with Sumitomo Corp and NEC. Now, one, one important thing about all of the telephone poles you see in a smart city, all of those telephone poles become 5G antennas. Oh, wow. Okay. And that's a key component of the smart city. Mm, and you okay. can equip these uh, antennas with LED lights, and these uh, these lights can power uh, AI-enabled cameras, and they can also be used to use for electricity to power um, uh, low-level frequency for uh, 5G radio communication. Mm. That's some of the ideas. Now, uh, when we look at Sumitomo and NEC, uh, they will be installing two types of smart poles to verify their utility under both ordinary and emergency circumstances. Emergency circumstances is very necessary if you need to get um, self-driving cars through a city remotely. Okay. Uh, more specifically, yep. the two companies plan to install the two models of the NEC's smart street lighting equipped with functions such as digital signage, advertising, and pedestrian traffic flow analysis cameras, AI cameras. One model will be outfitted with a 5G shared antenna system for joint use by multiple te telecommunications carriers, while the other, a site-sharing model, will be equipped with 5G base stations for multiple telecommunications carriers. So if we install these correctly, the pedestrian traffic flow will not be analyzing your face. You, you can, you can um, reduce the capture from instead of using video, you can use a, a different type of imagery where it doesn't record your body and your clothes, but it records the flow of the people. And so the people's clothing and body don't get transported through the 5G network. But it could be if you wanted to apply for it that way. So if you want to have a safe 5G antenna, mm. you would have it so that it anonymizes the data. And if somebody commits a crime, there are cameras there that can do analysis of the crime, either in real time or later, in which case there's some sort of risk, but it's pretty limited. So by focusing on, instead of on, on people and surveillance, but on traffic flow and safety, it can kind of prevent the overreach of surveillance. 
Mm, yeah. Now, finally, before, yes. before moving to that, there's two types of uh, these towers. Now, we're used to seeing 5G or uh, base stations and, and, and satellite dishes and antennas and things like that. And we look at them and we can clearly see that's an antenna, that's a satellite dish. It's as clear as day what these things are. These new 5G right, yeah. antennas, however, are designed mm-hmm. to look like, uh, like design. It looks like a, a fashionable pole. I see. Okay. So you right. don't know it's a 5G station looking at it. Okay. Oh, it so they're appear, not, okay. It appears like it's fashion. It appears like Is it's there, urban design. Oh, uh, okay. So it could come out, it could be like a, a sculpture, a public or something like that, but really a bus it's. Stop. Yeah. Oh, really? Think about oh, it. Okay. Yeah. Already Fire all of the telephone booths have five uh, have Wi-Fi equipped to them. All of the power is there. The the towers mm-hmm. reach a high enough level where they can beam down wires and distribute mm-hmm. them around corners. So right, the entire yeah. the entire telephone pole network of a city is a crucial factor for the development of a smart city. And depending on the applications that they put in these five G towers, are going to really. Um, either focus severely on data capitalism where it impedes on your um, anonymity and and your right to to be anonymous, or it can really focus on removing everything anonymous about you at all times, in real time. Wow. But I heard if you make a suit out of of aluminum foil, they can't read anything, so... (laughs) Well, the, the radio frequency won't be able to penetrate you, but you will certainly trigger some uh, some AI uh, camera monitoring system that looks for anomalies inside of crowd patterns. Yeah. Imagine if, like, the, like conspiracy theorists had one thing right, and they just said, like, you know, if you take a, a, a metal coat hanger and you put it up the way you used to put it up as an antenna for your TV, you can break all the, the – they can't read you at all. Yeah. Well, it it is true that if you do wrap your phone in tinfoil, yes, it can't be traced. Uh, but when we go beyond that, because the whole idea of a five G network is that it takes everything your phone does and puts it into the infrastructure of a city. Everything? Well, pretty much. I I gotta stop using my phone. <laughs> yeah. Well, think like the one idea is you walk out of your house and you just say the word Uber. And there's a camera there that recognizes your face and your speech, and it triggers uh, a, 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 an Uber to self-drive to where you are using mm-hmm. location data. The car right. yep. looks at your face, confirms it's the same person, opens mm-hmm. the door, and your face confirms the payment. And you go to your destination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's that's a 5G network. Right, yeah. And then with everything, with all of the uh, phone towers equipped with 5G um, tracking and 5G radio frequency in the 20 giga, 28 gigahertz range, it can use um, micro beams to attach onto the sensors in the car and guide the car within a centimeter of, um, of, uh, of, of awareness uh, through a congested traffic um, lane. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's amazing. Um, I, how far off do you think that is? Five years. What? Uh, five years. Okay. There's going to be place. Places are already doing it now. There are test zones. There's there's a uh, multiple test zones in China. 
mm-hmm. there are uh, I know that Toyota is teaming up with Docomo to transfer one of transform one of Toyota's old manufacturing zones <laughs> near um, Fuji into a 5G smart city and they're going to do a lot of trials there so the trials have begun but it really does depend on the capabilities of the engineers and the um, and the and the decisions of of the government to um, maintain safety and anonymity regarding uh, your uh, the individual's digital rights. Right. Yeah. I'm just wondering, like, because it always sounds so fantastic and flawless in theory, and th- but there are still like you know. Chicago still has power outages because of rogue squirrels, you know, like, (laughs) yeah, but if you have everything wireless. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just, I guess it just takes into account a whole new set of factors that could go wrong. That's all. One one major problem with this is the Bush problem. I'm not talking about the ladies. (laughs) I was going to say the president, (laughs) but okay. Okay. Um, That was a problem. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Anyways. The, the, the cars are, are required to have the ability to see the world around them and respond to certain things, stopping for people, stopping mm-hmm. at traffic lights, um, going on the green, making sure that your, your intersections are all organized. And okay. re- regarding that, that's all done by human design. So it's relatively, e- it's, it's, tech, it's being done so that it's relatively easy for most self-driving car companies to identify these things. One thing that's really difficult for a lot of these self-driving cars is bush because the bushes mm, okay. grow really quickly. They grow out of the cracks in the road. Oh, and if it's okay. windy, the bush is like a bunch of strings. And if it's sunny, the bush is like a circle with a bunch of flowers on it. And if the flowers are red and yellow and green, then the self-driving car might misidentify those as traffic lights. Wow. Really? So the bush in itself is so dynamic that we need to shave them. Shave the bush. <laughs> so, yeah, I understand what you mean. Where if you if, if we try to put the, oh, the self-driving cars into our existing infrastructure, then that's going to be difficult. But I know that the Chinese government is developing mm-hmm. a self-driving car network underground, like what Elon Musk is doing with the boring to- boring company, where the center mm-hmm. of the city has a network of underground traffic where uh, pedestrians access it from the ground level. Okay. So they are separating the pedestrian traffic from the self-driving car traffic, and then there's less chance of things that can go wrong, such as the bush. Uh, right, you know, right. Didn't yeah. shave the bush. There's a bush. The car gets confused, and underground the lighting doesn't change. So right, know, the it, angle of lighting it, and shadowing, shadowing and things and like all that. Of that. Yeah. So you can really kind of you can create the artificial environment that enables a computer to do what it's supposed to do without having to worry about the amount of variability involved with uh, human interaction and, and, and mother nature. Fascinating. Wow. The future folks is here. Yeah. And at Japan, what? Yeah. At Japan, what? Yeah. Zero insight, fulfilling that desire and that need. So uh, if, please, if you're interested in this, um, begin to look out for not not the five G towers that you know people are kind of burning and things like that because you can uh, you know that's not a good way to go about this. But if you're interested in the construction of five G towers, look at new poles being erected in your metropolitan centers 
uh, with with like there's like a design to them like they look fashionable and cool and there might even be like some writing on the pole like 5g enabled uh, wireless communication something like that there might be some sort of um, printing on the side of the pole that indicates to you in a very not deceptive but in a non-obvious way that that this is 5g technology being erected in your neighborhood whether you want it or not Wow. Uh, <laughs> it's a lot to hit people with, you know. It's funny, too, like, this is certainly not the first time it's been brought up, but when it finally, it's finally all around you, people are like, when did this happen? Even though little by little, we were all all aware of it coming, you know. Yeah, and um, one the reason why I want to talk about it and promote it, and not promote yeah. it, but may, uh, promote the awareness of it, is yeah. that the music industry really took a hit from the 4G technology. It went from people writing blogs about music and CDs to people hijacking live shows to promote themselves on Instagram and Facebook. Right, yeah. And if you look at the sale of music after the launch of 4G, it goes straight down, but the the consumption and the creation of music is going straight up. And this is a direct result of everybody moving their eyeballs and their time towards harnessing the world around them for their own personal promotion. So if you are a musician and you're feeling like mm-hmm. you got jammed and, 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 and raped, uh, then if you're aware of this new technology and you use it as an early um, onboarder, you might be able to take advantage of it and reclaim music into the next phase out of technology instead of music going down, down, down. It can go up, up, up. Or at least level off, yeah. Oh, there is no leveling off with this shit. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's... It's a vector that claims all. Oh, boy. Wow. Well, jump on that now. Get your TikTok account and uh... <laughs> <laughs> don't don't do Tik TikTok is a Chinese front and um, it's being used. It's owned by ByteDance, which is a, the most valuable startup in the world. It has like a hundred billion dollar valuation or something like that. And uh, they, they bought uh, an American app called Musically, and they replaced it with TikTok. And then overnight, this Chinese company had access to the bedrooms of 100 million uh, American teenage girls. But there's an animated feature that lets you put stars in your eyes. Yeah, I know. That's, <laughs> that's how easy it is. So that, Yeah. Uh, Get them while they're young. Yeah, Even I when guess. we were on Zoom just now, I know that Zoom's kind of a Chinese company. And, you know, I, I, I yeah. feel a little bit – it works great. It's way better. It does, it, yeah. It's way better than, than all the other offerings. I mean, Microsoft had – 30 years almost to develop Skype into something good. Instead, it just barely even works. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, they had 30 years of mistakes that you can just jump to then as your starting platform, you know. It's uh, it's not really fair sometimes in technology, especially if you're not very, very protective of intellectual property. Yeah, and that's exactly where we need to go. So Right. Anything else for today, Tom? I think we've covered a very broad spectrum. Um, So I think uh, I had a couple things, but let's save them for the next episode. Yeah, me too. Um, I wanted to get to that. So fulfilling our promises with the Japan What podcast of delivering you zero insight guaranteed. This is Matt Bigelow signing off for this week. Take care, everybody. And this is Tom Molesky. Thank you and stay safe.
I always wear my mask and wash my hands after going home. Stick it up. All right, and we're done.